Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. My name is Uzair Yunus and if you've been following developments in South Asia over the last few months or weeks, um, one of the things that you've read about and heard about consistently are the ongoing farmers protests in India. They've been the talk of town even though the reforms or the bills were passed uh, sometime in the middle late of next last year, excuse me. Um, but in the midst of the protests and the international coverage and the brouhaha that has come about as a result of these protests, the real meat and bones of what these reforms are and why they're important and actually good for India um, has been missed. So to talk about this, as well as the ongoing reform efforts by the Indian government in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, we have Sadan Antume, who is a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and also writes a weekly column for the Wall Street Journal. Um, Sadaran, thank you for taking out the time and welcome to Pakistanomy. Thanks for having me. Was there just one correction? The column is uh, every two weeks, not not every every week. two weeks. My, for, my apologies. I think a week <laughs> weekly column would be a little bit too much. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, it seems like it's a week. At least I enjoy reading it. So I would like it to be a weekly one. So maybe you <laughs> should you. consider that. Um, but, you know, on, I want to start with the farmers issue and, you know, go back to one of the columns you wrote on February 4th, which was titled Rihanna rallies to the wrong cause in India where on social media, you also got a bit of some flack, at least the way I noticed on what was in the article. But I found the article to be interesting and making a very valuable point. And I, I'll read you this quote that you made, which is that, quote, the idea that the government wants to oppress farmers who make up about half the country's workforce is absurd. If anything, it's trying to help them by allowing market forces to generate prosperity, end quote. So first, tell us, why these farmer laws are important or these farm reforms are important and why is it that you know the argument that these are good for india generate prosperity prime minister modi has historically talked about doubling farmers income and i felt this was a big step in that direction why has that story been missed in all of this uh, coverage internationally so let me take the second part first uh, i think that the reason it's been missed is that um, for most people, agricultural economics is just extremely boring. And the idea of uh, brave, brave protesters out in the cold against, you know, protesting against this evil government allegedly in bed with capitalists, um, that the sort of romance of the other side of the story is just much more powerful. And so that's one of the reasons why I think the, uh, you, you can't really, um, explain this without getting into some stuff that you and I might find interesting, but I think a lot of other people just puts a lot of other people to sleep. And so a lot of the coverage we've seen, I think, particularly in the West is just focused on the protests, which is perfectly legitimate up to a point, but they're not willing to go beyond that and look at the underlying issue because the underlying issue is uh, both complex and I think for many people boring. But let me just, you know, set the set the stage, and I think that this is something that will, you know, resonate with uh, many of your viewers and uh, listeners who follow the Pakistani economy too. I mean, it's no surprise, of course, that uh, that uh, a large percentage of the Indian workforce, uh, depending on 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 whose figures you look at, something between forty percent to fifty five percent of the workforce is uh, engaged in some shape or form uh, in agriculture but agriculture only accounts for about 16% of in India's GDP. So in many ways, the central challenge of India's economic modernization is to get people off farms and into factories. 
uh, the way China has done and the way many, many other East Asian economies have successfully done. And by way of comparison, if you take that 55% number, which is what I've used in the journal, if you compare it, uh, I think the US, it's, it's, it's about 2% about of the workforce is in agriculture. And in China, I believe right now it's about a quarter. So that's the kind of scale, the scale of the issue. The second thing that kind of uh, goes along with that is that uh, plot sizes in India have been shrinking generation by generation because the population is, is growing. In 1951, the population was um, you know, roughly around 350 million. Now it's about 1.4 billion. And so plot sizes are shrinking. The, the, you know, the average, uh, about 85% of Indian farms are less than two hectares. So these are really small. I mean, in parts of America that would qualify as a backyard. So the, the, the plots are small, they're shrinking. A lot of these farmers don't have, the, they, they're not able to achieve economies of scale. And so there are a whole bunch of problems. Now, in the long term, the solution, I think there's a broad consensus, the solution is to get farmers and their children to have other things to do, right? So move them from the farm to the factory, as I said. But in the meantime, and this is the law called Mundi's in our part of the world, or the state-controlled marketing yards, and allow these farmers to sell their produce either in alternative markets directly to private players. Another one of the laws makes it uh, removes these uh, removes these draconian controls that in fact, you know, date back to World War II. And then of course, as with many laws in India, made over time, people to build private storage capacity. So that's another one of the, another one of the laws, you know, allowing people to store more grains and so on. Another one looks at uh, contract farming. So, you know, these are all, if you look at them together, these are all broadly market friendly. Now the protesters are, also have reason to protest. So I don't sort of dismiss the concerns of the protesters. And the way to look at this is that India built a system uh, starting in the late 1960s and early 70s with the Green Revolution. And it went from being the world's largest recipient of food aid to one of the world, to, to an agricultural powerhouse, right? Um, especially in, in, in wheat and rice. Now, the farmers who were the backbone of that green revolution and, to a, and, and have benefited to a large extent from the state-led procurement system that was set up with minimum support prices, with these state-led marketing, state-controlled marketing yards and so on, were concentrated in Punjab and Haryana. And if I were a farmer, a wheat farmer in Punjab or in Haryana, I probably would worry about the, the system uh, the existing system being challenged and potentially dismantled. Even though there's a lot of disinformation out there and the government has repeatedly said that it is not going to remove uh, minimum support prices. Um, and a lot of the sort of, you know, commentators in the West, I mean, have, have, have basically claimed that the MSP has gone or is going, and that's not true. But nonetheless, if you are a farmer from Punjab and Haryana, or Haryana, I can understand why they would have legitimate fears that maybe over time, a system that has given them a certain guaranteed income would be under would be under threat, but that is not all of the country. First of all, and uh, moreover, you have many many other cases where they would, in fact, farmers will have greater options. 
And if you talk to, you know, the genuine, genuine agriculture, right? I mean, I'm just, I'm a business journalist here. If you talk to, you know, genuine, uh, you know, experts in the in Indian ag agricultural economy, people like Ashok Gulati, um, he will tell you that, uh, that India has actually been very successful in places, in other pl places where, uh, if you look at poultry, if you look at dairy, other areas where, in fact, uh, farmers with very limited resources have had access to wider markets. And that cutting out the monopoly of these uh, of these mandis is in fact uh, potentially hugely beneficial. So I think in any as with any large sweeping reform, you probably will have you know winners and losers. I'm not saying that there'll be no losers, but the economic logic of this leans overwhelmingly in favor of the laws. And these are not coming from nowhere. This is something that you know we've been discussing. I've been covering this. Um, I've been, I've, I've, I first started writing about the Indian economy for a, a now defunct magazine called the Far Eastern Economic Review back in the late 1990s. And, and these, this, this set of reforms was being bandied about and talked about even then. So it's not as though it's come from nowhere. There've been countless committee reports. There've been countless uh, think tank reports and so on on it. And the reform argument for the laws is fundamentally sound and that unfortunately, has got drowned out uh, in some of the larger coverage of these protests. I think that that's a really good overview. And as you were discussing, I was reminded of the fact that we had a founder of a food startup in Pakistan just a couple of weeks ago. And I asked him, like, why did he start this business and what the problem was? And he was a small farm owner. And he said, you know, I would go to the Mandi. Um, it's a colonial construct that's still there in Pakistan. Go to the Mandi, sell my tomatoes for five rupees a kilo. And I would go down 10 kilometers down into the retail segments of the city of Lahore. And the same tomatoes would be going for 100 rupees at that time. And I was exactly. like, where is this value being captured, right? Um, and he, I, I joked with him, I was like, you understand the Indian farm reforms much more than a lot of other people. And he was like, yeah, I actually think that's a great <laughs> thing. Absolutely. Right? Right. Um, but I, I want to touch upon and the other thing that I thought of is like, you know, you mentioned like where India is competitive now, like people should look up India's shrimp exports, for example, and farmers have done phenomenally well over the last few years as shrimp exports have gone. And again, that is basically because of market economics and connecting Indian farmers to global supply chains has been phenomenal as an opportunity macroeconomically for the country, but also for the farmer on the ground. Um, but there's this one tension I want to get your perspective on. Um, which is that you have this idea that we need to generate income and wealth for the farmers, A, by increasing productivity, which is basically shifting labor out of the agricultural economy into other parts, um, but B, also that we need to control food inflation in the country. How do you see that tension? Do you see the government having a point of view or done some thinking on that? Because I see that as a risk, right? That on the one hand, you want to shift people from rural India into industrial manufacturing, A, growth there, and we'll get to that, how do you generate growth over there? But also, if you raise the prices or raise the incomes they're making, somebody's got to pay for it, um, which translates into inflation, and then the RBI steps in and has to curb inflation, and that links back to the broader economy. How, how does that that equation or that tension get resolved in what the government is trying to do versus India's overall growth ambitions? No, I mean, that's a somewhat technical question. I'm not sure I'm competent to answer it, but I think that the, the basic uh, thinking on this right now is exactly the point you raised later about cutting out the middleman. 
So I don't think the government, it's sort of, I don't, I don't think it's necessarily that the government says that, well, you know, you're selling your, you know, you're selling your, your the consumer is paying a hundred rupees for the tomato. And now we want the consumer to spend, to pay 200 rupees for the tomato. Um, this government, I mean, as I like many governments is very skittish about inflation. And in many ways, you know, I, I wrote a column about this in the journal uh, last year. And I pointed out that, in fact, you could argue that they have not been market friendly enough. They're very quick to you know, slap export curbs, for example. So it's not as though they won't be skittish about uh, inflation if it comes to that. But the idea over here is that of how much of that value is actually going to the farmer and how much of that is being you know, captured by these cartels in the mundies. And if you break the cartel, you give the farmer more options. You also allow firms to come in directly and so on. So I don't know sort of how this plays out with the kind of, you know, larger issue, which is that also if they also start charging more. So I, I um, that, but that's, that, that's a very good question. Let's switch to the broader reforms agenda, right? I mean, Prime Minister Modi, the BJP is the dominant force in Indian politics right now. It has immense political capital. And a lot of that comes from his own push towards reforming the economy, talking about you know, doing away with the friction, delivering welfare better, um, a lot of which he did in the first term. But we've seen in the second term that he he and his party have sort of reverted to the cultural and social agenda. And in your most re recent column, you say that necessity is forcing him to relook or re-emphasize the economic reforms. And you call this Modi Economics 2.0. So tell us, how do you see Modinomics 2.0? And where do you see the government going, both in terms of its broad macroeconomic vision, but also some of the specific things that you uh, see them doing that you look at and say, this is the right step forward for where India needs to go moving forward. So sir, I actually take a pretty dim view of what of how they did in the first term. So yes, it's certainly true. I mean, that they were that they were fairly successful at delivering welfare to large numbers of people without some of the usual leakages, things like subsidized gas, uh, loans for government help for toilet construction, some of these small loans for self-employed entrepreneurs, mudra loans. Uh, so they had a whole bunch of these, the, the famous uh, opening the bank accounts for many, many people in villages. So they, they, they focused on those kinds of programs and they implemented them uh, fairly well, certainly better than the previous government had. And that paid off very dramatically for Modi in 2019. And I think was probably the single largest factor contributing to his uh, return to power with an enhanced majority. But if you look at the reform record of his first term, it's actually, there isn't wasn't much, home, much, much to write home about. Um, first of all, the single most uh, dramatic thing he did in those five years was what I call nutty demonetization, a policy that was too crazy for Venezuela. And, uh, you know, I'm referring to the, uh, yeah. nuclear, the nuking of uh, almost 90% of India's currency bills by value. And uh, if I remember correctly, the, what five people or so knew about what was coming down the pipe, and that didn't include the RBI either. Yeah, and we don't know who knew. And apparently, you know, the, 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 the guy who came up for it, apparently his greatest, you know, credential was that he's like a, he, was, he, he never got married, so obviously he must be a good guy. So it was like really from the, you know, the deepest murks of, you know, crackpot Hindu, Hindu nationalist economics. So that was the, 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 the flagship decision of the first term, right? Let's, let's, let's not, let's not uh, elide that. 
Then you had the GST, which is a good idea, everyone. So, so demonetization is a crackpot idea, badly implemented. Then you had the goods and services tax, which was widely viewed as a good idea, because it was supposed to simplify the taxation system and so on, knit India into a single market. And there they, you know, it was a good idea, but by the time they were done with it, they had managed to make the world's most complicated GST with all kinds of tiers. And it was just like, you know, uh, you know complete dog's breakfast. Just a uh, fun the, anecdote on GST, because uh -huh. I, I was actually doing some work on it when I was at Albright Stonebridge Group and the GST came out and I was left scratching my head because the list of the different tiers for taxes was so long that it was hard to keep track of them. And at some point, like, deodorants were in the luxury goods category if i remember correctly and something else wasn't and it was just like bizarre in terms I mean, of how even that list was structured it was the opposite of what a gst is supposed to be right so take a gst a classic gst like australia's gst it's 10 percent on goods and services that's it uh, whereas this was you know modi called it a good and simple tax but it was anything but good and simple right so they they turned this into a kind of you know a, bureau, a bureaucratic nightmare. So, and then they had the bankruptcy code, which actually was a significant reform um, and uh, seemed to have been going well. And then I think political considerations intervened and they had to sort of slow that down. But beyond that, there isn't much, much to write home about in terms of what they, were, what they managed to do. They, they claimed that they wanted to sell Air India. They couldn't find a single buyer. There was no privatization. Their idea of privatization was a bit of a joke where you had one state-owned company buying shares in another state-owned company. So the first term I would characterize as uh, largely focused on the welfare part. That was, you know, you, you, Modi, if you just look at 2014 to 2019, I don't think any fair-minded observer would say that that was a, a, a term that was led by reform. Now, there were a few things here and there that I haven't mentioned, like, you know, FDI caps being raised here and there. And some of the rhetoric was certainly, you know, uh, pro-business. And if you talk to individual business people and you would have, you know, you would have experience of that from your Albright Stonebridge days, it's certainly true that some of them would say things like, well, you know, we get a hearing in the prime minister's office. And if we have a, you know, some you know, road needs to get built and we're having some problems, those kind of bottlenecks tended to get cleared and so on. So it's not like nothing. But in terms of structural reform, the record was quite poor. Now he comes into the second term and it's certainly true that, that they have doubled down on the uh, cultural agenda. So you have the abrogation of article 317 in Kashmir, you've got the, well, technically it's the court that uh, allowed this, but in any case, you have the government really sort of uh, embracing with great fanfare, the building of the temple in Ayodhya, You've got the citizenship amendment law, which led to major protests. And these are all kind of, you know, cultural hot button issues one way or the other. But it's not as though they have embraced the uh, cultural agenda and ignored the economic agenda. Because if you look at what's been happening, particularly post COVID, it's, it's not an, it's, it's both. So you've got the cultural agenda, you've got these sort of written, you know, I've written a lot about a lot of this stuff in the journal the love jihad, so-called love jihad laws. Or, so they have a lot of this sort of stuff. A lot of it is quite, you know, ugly and disturbing. On the economic front, however, they are moving ahead with uh, definitely the most business-friendly reforms we have seen since the early 2000s. And if they manage to execute everything that they say that they're going to execute, 
than perhaps the most business-friendly reforms we have seen since Indian independence. And I think talking about this becomes a little bit uh, you know, tricky, uh, partly just because Modi is such a polarizing figure. And if you, so, I mean, I had this when I wrote about the agriculture reforms. If you point out that, well, you know, the agriculture reforms make sense, people will uh, you know, immediately assume that, well, oh, so that means that you're also down with the cultural agenda and you know, like, you know, like, what have you got against interfaith marriage or something, you know, something. And, you know, and, and I guess that's just true you know, in this era of populism of any of these leaders, right? You, you, you don't get to discuss their policies with, uh, with nuance because they're just you know, particularly well, on my, social My media. rule of thumb on this is that if you're getting abused by both sides of the aisle, whether India, Pakistan, the United States, or whatever, then you're doing something right because yeah, you're actually no, no, making a nuanced point and that's, that's pissing off people, partisans on either side yeah. of the spectrum. No, that's a good way to think about it. So, um, so I think that's one of the reasons why um, it becomes a little bit difficult to talk about. But if you were to just separate these two, right? And in fact, you can make the case. I mean, I would, I'm, I'm perfectly fine with people who make the case that no, we should not separate the two. We should not have a discussion about the economy. We should only be looking at this in the totality. But that just happens not to be my position. Um, I write for a business newspaper. I look at the economic part of this to the extent I can objectively and clinically apart. Um, it's not that I ignore the other set of issues. In fact, I write probably more about the other set of issues. But if you were to just look at what they're doing economically, there's a lot going on. Now they have promised, now again, we don't know if they'll be able to deliver, but they've promised the most dramatic privatization in Indian history. They're basically now saying that the default is to privatize and they will just retain a public sector presence in four what they call strategic sectors. And beyond that, they intend to privatize a large number of firms, uh, including Air India. They intend to privatize at least, they're gonna start with two banks. And that is extremely symbolic. And you know, if you look at Indian economic history, because I would say that the heyday of, uh, of Indira Gandhi's socialist project was the nationalization of the banks in 1969. And uh, even though they, the, the two banks that they, were, that they hope to privatize will likely be small banks, the symbolism is, of it is huge, right? To take, something from the, to take something from the public sector and put it back into the private sector. The mere fact that the finance minister repeatedly used the word privatization in her budget speech and not uh, the weaselly word disinvestment, which many Indian politicians have traditionally preferred. The fact that Modi in parliament said that it was making fun of bureaucrats and the idea that, you know, that, that, a, that a bureaucrat is uh, regarded as competent to run a fertilizer company or run an airline. And he had some joke about, well, what's he gonna do next, fly the plane? And uh, so the, the, that, all of that points, at least in the, re in the rhetorical sense to a very dramatic shift. Um, the like, businessmen are not being, you know, are being spoken of as wealth creators. Uh, the prime minister is saying that they must be respected. These are the people who are going to create jobs. These are the people who have put India on the world map. So I have not seen this kind of um, pro-business, sustained pro-business rhetoric uh, in my lifetime. And certainly not in my time the, in, the, in, in the more than two decades that I've been covering the Indian economy. So that's one part of it. 
The second part of it, I think, is a little bit uh, trickier, which is that they are basically they're taking a leaf out of the East Asian book. And what they're trying to do is attract manufacturing to India using these production linked incentives. So they've identified 13 sectors of the economy, uh, batteries, solar power, uh, automobiles and auto components, pharma, cell phones, electronics. There's a, whole, there's a whole, whole list you can sort of easily Google. So they've identified these 13 sectors. And then over the next five years, they plan to uh, pour $27.5 billion into uh, supporting firms that build capacity and it will sort of be linked to how well they do. Now, my own view is that, you know, if, they, if it works, terrific. I mean, they, they, they want to kickstart industrialization. They would argue that some variant of this has worked in many East Asian countries. Um, it goes along with raising tariffs to again, discourage people from just, you know, from cheap, cheap imports from, from China so because they want India to have a manufacturing base. But I think that this strategy is also fraught with peril because what you could end up doing is uh, basically have, finding a class of businessmen whose real talent is not making anything, but it's on you know, gaming the system. And uh, we've seen variations of this in the past, right? This is not the license permit, right? It's much more open to foreign investment. It's sort of, it's try, they're trying to link it to competition. They have sunset clauses in theory about when these incentives will run out and all of that. But um, you know, at, if, you, if you just step back and you look at uh, what happens when uh, government starts plowing large amounts of money into, into business, uh, we do know from the past that uh, a lot of businessmen have been very good at managing that process. And that has really been their com competitive advantage rather than anything else. And so I'm a little bit skeptical. I'm a little bit, uh, you know, about, uh, about how this is going to turn out. But I think it's extremely significant. What we are seeing is uh, Modinomics 2.0. And the three legs of that uh, are these production-linked incentives, high tariffs, and uh, a reversal of three decades of, of, of trade liberalization, accompanied by deregulation, uh, agriculture, simplification of labor laws, and, and many other sort of uh, other reforms. So I think that's, that's, that's what we're looking at. And that seems to be the kind of uh, defining uh, direct economic direction of the second term. And I think the prime minister's talked about it as Atmanirbhar Bharat, right? Which I also think, and I think you will agree, is a double-edged sword. Because on one hand, you can say self-reliant India that is globally integrated through these PLIs and where supply chains are being moved. But it can also be the self-reliant India, similar to not exactly the same as a licensed Raj India, where crony capitalists or those with connections get the incentives and have high tariffs that protect them from competition from abroad. Um, and we'll see, time will tell where this goes, but more specifically, there is something that at least concerns me and I would like your point of view on this is that if you think in theory that the PLIs and moving supply chains from China or elsewhere into India is the path forward, then one would assume that India would have signed on to RCEP, that India would integrate through trade deals with the rest of the East Asian region, but also with the United States and other parts of the world. But that hasn't happened. In fact, you know, they've gone back and started raising tariffs. 
why do you think that is the case? And do you think there's a, there's a flaw there in terms of the thinking or is there something more that's going on in terms of what the government thinks it wants to do? So I think a couple of things are going on. And I, the way I view the Indian decision to walk away from RCEP, it's really a, a, at its core, it's an admission of defeat. And it's a sense that uh, India and Indian industry will simply not be able to compete with China. And therefore, India cannot afford to be part of RCEP. And, uh, you know, I mean, the point you raise is a very good one, because if India wants to move these supply chains and it wants to sort of create these markets, uh, it's doing so at a time when, first of all, there isn't such a great appetite for, I mean, let's just say that India starts, you know, moving towards becoming the next China in terms of manufacturing capability. I don't see any appetite either in uh, the US or in the EU to sort of uh, take on the economic costs of that the way an earlier generation was willing to take on, perhaps inadvertently, the costs of the modernization of China and the impact that that had on large chunks of the middle class in the US, right? We've seen the political consequences of this. So I'm not sure the timing is, is very smart. Uh, beyond that, what incentive does everybody else have to open up their markets when India itself is raising tariffs and closing its market and moving away from uh, trade treaties. Uh, at the best of times, India has found it very hard to negotiate uh, trade, uh, trade agreements, either with the US or with the EU. And so under these circumstances, I think that, you know, that, that it, it, cuts in the, uh, it cuts in the op opposite direction. You also have the fact that the relationship with China is very uh, fraught. And uh, you know that has obviously that has mostly geopolitical reasons, but that also raises questions, right? If you're if if India both in terms of access to the Chinese market and also in terms of access to Chinese know-how and expertise, so the it and, and then the I, I agree with you entirely on this Nirbhar. I think the, the the choice of the term itself is extremely unfortunate because it means that the government and government officials are constantly on the defensive. Because on the face of it, it means self-reliance. And so they have to always be say, you know, talking about this stuff and with an asterisk next to it and saying, hey, 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 well, you know, we really don't mean that we're going back to the, to the, to the, to the bad old days. Um, so then we know why do you come up with a term that you need to explain all the time, right? Maybe you needed to come up with a, with a, with a different term. And um, my fear is that if you kind of, if you, if you put all of this against the backdrop of a kind of political economy, issue. Uh, and if you factor in things like fundraising for elections and so on, uh, basically this, uh, the, the, if, you, if you add it all up, you could argue that this makes the most sense for the BJP as a political party uh, to have an economy where the government role is very important and also an economy where, which, where uh, they are able to favor certain business groups and so on. And uh, you know, create a very tight ecosystem where their campaign, the campaign fundraising, is linked to linked to these things. So the the chances of this, you know, heading in that direction, I'd say are are fairly high. Though, if you were to speak to someone who's more optimistic about this, they would argue that look, they've already have some had some early successes. Apple is exporting from India. They have uh, uh, they hope to get. Uh, Cisco and Tesla, they've got Foxconn, they've got Samsung. So, I mean, so let's see. Um, and the other sort of one last thing I want to add, the other kind of danger over here is that 
they probably, in my senses, that they overestimate the size of the Indian market. Now, it makes sense for many firms to invest in India if India, I mean, like if you're making cheap cell phones, it makes a lot of sense to be in India because you, the, the, the market is right there. But for a lot of these other things, right? High-end automobiles, high-end storage systems, a lot of these other things, the market in India is a small fraction of the Chinese market. So India has to make itself a competitive, low-cost place for them to manufacture for other places. So yeah, so there are many kind of you know potential uh, potential pitfalls here, um, but uh, in fairness, we're not going to be able to judge this one right away, right? We're going to have to come back and see how they're doing in three years and see how they're doing in five years and and see if if this you know uh, is playing out the way they they want it to play out. I fully agree, and I think we've had a lot of noise um, recently, just a few weeks ago, on the change to e-commerce and retail policy dynamics that caused concern among American companies. For example, um, we just had the new rules around social media and digital media. I think um, those are also concerning. Even staying aside, uh, you know, the social issue around controlling speech, etc. But even in terms of pushing onerous regulations on new media startups saying that you have to have a compliance officer and be able to respond and have to ultimately report to a bureaucrat talking about prime minister says bureaucrat shouldn't be in running fertilizer companies etc but he's apparently he's okay with them running you know organizations that look after what's posted on youtube etc and that causes concern right because you have this policy volatility that says, look, India is Atma Nirbhar with the asterisks on one point, but then it can very quickly flip and delete the asterisks and become self-reliant on the other. And that is concerning for international investors. And I think from even the perspective of shifting supply chains, like I, I agree with you that walking out of RCEP is an admission of defeat, but if supply chains, someone from China is going to move their supply chain elsewhere, they will now first look at RCEP member countries of which India is not a part of, and then look at India because there is a clear trade disconnect between between the regions now. And I think net net, it's a challenge for India to compete in that. Um, what are other reforms that you think that that should be on the anvil and should be passed? I know, like I remember coming to DC and doing my first internship um, and reading about you know getting rid of the bad loans and b- banks issue. And two banks, small ones, are on the agenda, but a lot more needs to be done. But Beyond that, what are some other things that you think the government needs to do to make sure that wealth creation actually occurs and the government gets out of the way of the economy? I mean, I think one large thing would be to end what the you know what what they a term that they themselves coined when they were in uh, when they were in opposition tax terrorism. Uh, I'm not sure if you've been following this, but you know there'd be all there'd been these reports about high net worth individuals in fact uh, leaving India in fairly large numbers. And one of the reasons is that the tax administration is frankly broken. There's a ton of, uh, there's a ton of harassment. There's constant talk about making it impersonal and making it work, making it work right. But I think the essential problem is that the political class, and here I don't just blame the BJP, the political class has to uh, promise many things to get elected. And the, 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 the wall, their wallets are simply not fat enough, which means that the tax inspectors are always under pressure. They're given targets and they're going to try and shake people down in, in ways sometimes that are unfair. I think that's, uh, that's, that's, that's one issue that they have to look at. 
Um, I think this, you know, the, what you talk about is the, the, the fundamental problem with Atmanirbhar, that has to be looked at because you have to find a way to reassure foreign businesses and let them feel that, you know, that, that, that they are welcome and that the, mu that the mood music in the country hasn't shifted in a way that suggests that, you know, foreign businesses are, are somehow to be, uh, you know, there only on sufferance. And we are, in fact, India wants a national alternative to Twitter or a national alternative to all of these. So that's the sort of, you know, that, 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 that's another concern. In terms of specific reforms, there's a sort of perennial, perennial list. One is to kind of get the, you know, the more, more private energy into the banking system. Some of India's most successful banks are private banks, but uh, the banking system itself, again, going back to Indira Gandhi's bank nationalization, remains extremely uh, state dominated. So that these two privatizations that are coming up would be a good kind of uh, a good, good start. There's been talk of setting up a bad bank, and that might work at least in terms of uh, a, a short-term solution in in the sense in, in the sense of getting allowing banks to get over some of the NPAs because the NPAs would have been concentrated in this bank bad bank and get them to start lending again and get credit moving and so on. Um, but ultimately, you know, the problem with the in the in the banking sector is it's 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 by design almost. It's a political economy problem. If it's done, if it's if it's run, if it's if it's state owned, um, are these banks really making uh, lending decisions that are uh, purely based on economic considerations, or are other considerations coming in? And can uh, well-connected businesses find ways to game the system where you know they take the big take a big loan and they find a way to not pay it back because they figured out how to make you know to do a favor to some. A powerful person in government, and so on. So these are, you know, long, long-standing uh, problems. Uh, but even if they can do what they say that they want to do now, for example, the wide-ranging privatization, I think that'll go a long way into, you know, uh, in terms of uh, moving the economy forward. I think from being a Pakistani American, we've heard about privatizing and reforming the PIA for a long, long time. And I yeah. think the same holds true with Air India. There's some things that hold India and Pakistan in common on the economic front as well, beyond cricket and other cultural well, connections. I had, a, right? I had a, I had a, like a running joke. My running joke was to like, do we should, we should, you should, we should have like the negative Amon Asha, which is like, we compete to see like, you know, who's got the worst airline. And then they can like <laughs> try to be better. Exactly, it's like you know, no, but you know, but PIA is it's, it's losing even more money than Air India, yes. or the other way around, or whatever. <laughs> so I'll ask a prediction of you. Do you think they will actually this time around is different, and that they actually manage to privatize Air India and put it on a path to reform and sustainability, or will this also just be another unfulfilled dream of ours? Look, I would love to be proven wrong, but I've been, you know, I've ever since they've, they've been promising this since 2017 and I get like, I get barraged by BJP supporters on Twitter who say that, well, why don't you say, why don't you write about their privatization in the Wall Street Journal? And I'm like, well, if it happens, I promise you, I will say good things about it. I'm not going to sort of say that this is a terrible thing, but it has to happen. And uh, call me skeptical. Um, but I mean, I, I think their intention is serious. I don't know if they have the chops to pull it off. Two other questions before I ask for you for your book recommendations. The, the, the first one is, you know, you've talked about 
the prime minister and there being a shift in tone most recently about wealth creation, entrepreneurs, businessmen are good for the country, they will move it forward. But then on the flip side, we've also seen this sensitivity towards being called a Sudput Ki Sarkar, which is a repeat of history in the Indian context as well. And again, similar to Pakistan, where people start off with the idea that if you're a successful entrepreneur or business, you are somehow a chore or stealing money mm -hmm. or in some sort of crony capitalist in, in that sense, and that holds the country back. So do you think there's sensitivity, that sensitivity towards being referred to as a Sudput Ki Sarkar is a sort of proverbial sword that's hanging that can stop all of this because it gets too sensitive from a political angle? Or is this just a fear that probably the BJP has the political capital and the popularity to just ignore and move on with its agenda? I think that's an open question. I mean, what we do know was that in 2015, uh, he got Modi got very quickly spooked by the Sudbutki Sarkar jibe, and uh, he was planning to do land, land acquisition reform, and he dropped that. And he was, you know, so obviously he was very sensitive to that line of attack. And it's an old truism in Indian politics that you know you're only attacked from the left flank. Nobody, no, no nobody's going to apart from like you know a handful of people writing in the pink papers. No, no one of any political significance is going to attack you for not being market-friendly enough. Um, so, so, so any politician has to, be, uh, has to you know, keep that in mind. Um, if you're optimistic, then uh, you think, then it's possible that Modi feels that he can do this because he's built enough credibility in his first term with all his welfare programs. He already has that, you know, quote unquote, pro poor image. He is, uh, you know, his 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 cultural agenda, albeit very unpopular with a section of society, um, actually gives him this fanatical base that will uh, basically go along with whatever he says, right? So I mean, these are, you know, if, so if Modi says privatization is great, they'll say privatization is great. And if Modi tomorrow says privatization is terrible, they'll say privatization is terrible. So they don't—they don't really have economic views, right? But they think—but but they're, they're kind of attached to him. So uh, he has potentially he has the political capital, but this stuff can turn on a dime, right? We've seen how on agricultural reform they've been willing—they're willing to postpone it by 18 months, two years. They're—they're—they're uh, they're, they're because of the protests. Uh, so it remains to be seen if there's a setback, a serious setback in state elections. It's quite possible they go back to the drawing board. And you know, in the end, let's be very clear, these guys are politicians who want to retain power first and foremost. Um, there is uh, no ideological component here. I would argue that the first BJP uh, government, which had people like Shori uh, in it, uh, there was an ideological element that they believed that India had gone in the wrong direction under Nehru and they wanted to fix these things. Uh, I think with uh, this lot, it's less ideological. It's a question of they think that this would be good for the economy. They need to have get, get, get the Indian economic story moving again. But if they face serious sustained political pushback, I, they, they'll ditch this stuff without a second thought. And speaking of things that can turn on a dime, we've had a sort of breakthrough in India-Pakistan relations with the ceasefire agreement being yeah. reinforced yet again. Um, are you cautiously optimistic that, quote-unquote, this time is different yet again? Or are we going to, again, turn on a dime and go back to where we are? Because I think, and I'm pretty sure you will agree, that there's a lot of gains to be made there, in, just in terms of the trade relationship. 
And with the United States thinking of a withdrawal from Afghanistan, the Central Asian market opens up in terms of the future. And it's a questionable future in terms of how things move forward. But that cannot happen while India and Pakistan remain uh, locked into in this perennial struggle that they've been for the long period of time. So how do you view the recent developments that have occurred uh, on in Delhi? And you know, I mean, I wish I could, I really wish I could be optimistic, but I'm not. I mean, I, I think that there's some logic to the, you know, to, on the narrow question of the ceasefire. Uh, it's quite possible that, you know, that holds because it's in both countries' interest and so on. But on the broader question of uh, approaching some kind of normal relationship, which I'd like to see, more people-to-people -people contact, a, a normal trade relationship, and where you can, you know, the, the, the gains would be huge for both countries. Um, it's hard for me to be optimistic, and you know, traditionally, I always would, would I would, I the, I think the, the, in, at least in my assessment, the main stumbling block, you know, going back to sort of uh, before the advent of Modi, when well, the main stumbling block, uh, to my mind, was always the Pakistani establishment. Where they didn't want the trade relationship to normalize, they were sort of worried about, about about that. But now we've got a new sort of you know problem, which is that I think in the last uh, few years, especially the Indian capacity to uh, the capacity in India to even have a halfway sort of rational, calm discussion about anything to do with Pakistan seems to has have vanished. Right? I mean, it's it's actually it's. It's almost funny in some ways, right? I was in Pakistan uh, in uh, last year, and I mean, this like this, this the, the, um, the the most trivial thing could get you know get people worked up, right? So like I you know I had some great chole bature and shared that just a picture of that, and like there were like hundreds of people had a meltdown, and so I I I think that that until and and that a lot of that is obviously you know driven by the ruling party and so on, and until they can sort of get to some kind of uh, baseline where there are enough adults in the room who can simply think of Pakistan as well. Okay, yeah, here's a neighboring country. We don't have to be best friends, but we don't have to be, you know, but we can do business together. That, 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 that kind of like, that's not possible. And Indians and Pakistanis, at least in this sort of this way this relationship works, it's always this, you know, this, this oscillation, right? And it's like you know you I you know goes goes from uh, hot to cold and nothing and 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 nothing in between, and I think now the thermostat which I think was broken in Pakistan not on the people to people level but on the sort of establishment level, um, I think that thermostat is broken in India uh, with the with the ruling party and its supporters. So it's hard for me to be optimistic at least in the medium term. I think again there. Prime Minister Modi has a lot of political capital, right? Again, he has this rabid base. If he tomorrow says oh, this sure. is good and makes a case for it, it'll change completely, right? And if he chose to, agreed, he could do a lot. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Okay, this has been a great conversation and really appreciate your insights and views. Before I let you go, what are two or three books that you would recommend for people to read? Um, it's a question I ask everyone. It can be on any topic um, and would love to hear your thoughts on what's good well, out there. You know, the first is sort of just a general, not, not a book, but a long essay. Um, uh, George Orwell wrote this essay called Politics and the English Language. And I think that it's one of those perennials that uh, particularly young people who don't read Orwell now should would would benefit from reading, because he really talks about the importance of clarity in language and saying what we mean and meaning what we say when we're and 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 the danger of 
using weasel words when we're describing uh, when we're talking about politics. So I think that's 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 a, that's a perennial. I kind of I go back to that from time to time. Um, if I had to recommend two books that are more on the on on the region, um, I read uh, not long ago an excellent book uh, by Stanley Walpert, which who's of course familiar to uh, many Pakistanis because of his uh, excellent biography of of, of Jinnah. But uh, he wrote a book. In fact, this may have been his first book called Tilak and Gokhale, which was really about the politics of the Indian National Congress before the advent of Gandhi. And uh, I think there's a lot of uh, a lot you can kind of uh, get out of that book in terms of the trajectory that the independence struggle in India took and the, and the Pakistan movement and so on. If you kind of just look at these two figures who were the dominant figures uh, in the party before the before the rise of Gandhi around 1920, and uh, one of my uh, favorite Pakistan books, even though I don't uh, I don't really I don't agree with the uh, I don't ag agree with the editorial line, so to speak. Um, I think uh, Anthony Levin's uh, Pakistan, a hard country, to me remains one of like the definitive good good kind of big picture view books. Um, on on uh, that I've seen come out about Pakistan in the last, you know, ten or fifteen years. Th thanks for that. I'm definitely going to put Wolpert's book because I've read his biography of Jinnah and of Bhutto, and I think there must reach to understand through the lens of two leaders how they change not only the course of history but how they represent the views prevailing of that time and influence yeah. the views that were prevailing of that time. And, you know, Orwell's always good because the weasel words you talked about disinvestment. I remember in grad school, we used to joke about in World War II, de-housing campaigns, which were basically mass bombing raids in Europe that were launched <laughs> by the United States. Or most recently, um, the White House uh, press secretary talking about describing the cages as some sort of facilities that follow certain rents. She was, you know, you using a weasel language to basically say cages, but not say cages. And so I think they can be good for you in a certain way to obfuscate. But when you use a term like Atmanir Barbara, the de-housing campaigns, then they become problematic. Well, they're never good for writers and journalists, right? They may be good for Correct. politicians, but Correct. they're never good we for- We can call torture enhanced interrogation techniques yeah. and the politician may get away with the journalist will pick up on that. So thank you so much for taking out the time. This was wonderful. Appreciate Thanks, you sharing your insights and look forward to having you again. And hopefully having you when Air India gets privatized and maybe the PIA as well, and we can celebrate that. Excellent. Thanks, Jose. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.